So you'll remember last week we were in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, and we were walking through this idea that, that kind of ends with that God has given Jesus to the church, and it's this, this radical concept. And so I was doing some reading this week, and I was, I was reading in another book, and this guy was, was quoting Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in the Manhattan area, and Keller was describing church. And he said that, that oftentimes people have the wrong idea of what they presume church to be. He said, in reality, what church is, is church is, is it gives us the picture of sick people in a doctor's waiting room. So you've been there, some of you more recently, some of you, by the sounds of it, you should go there tomorrow. You've been in this waiting room and you look around and, and you're looking and you see sick people who have maladies. You yourself, you're sick. You have the flu, you have a cold, you have an aching back. You have something in your life that you want to be alleviated, taken care of. And that's why you're there, right? Nobody goes to the doctor to pay $25 to $35 copay just to hang out with him because you think he's a good, solid guy. Hey, how's it going? I see lots of germs around your office. Anything I can lick in particular? Right? None of us are doing that. But too often, we, we don't see the church as this waiting room. Too often, we see the church as a reception area, and what we see ourselves doing there is waiting for a job interview. So this is why we see people show up to church, and, and they, are, they are dressed and ready to impress. They're dressed and ready to blow people away with how great their week has been, how amazing their personal life is, how together they have things. The reality of the situation is this. We're all humble beggars waiting on God to change us. In fact, when we get back into Ephesians here in a couple of weeks, this church that God gave Jesus to, to establish, what we're going to read in Ephesians chapter 2, is that God chose to populate this church to bring it together with dead people with people who were lost in sin and struggles. And, and, and God chose to take those dead people who were lost and were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was at work in them for death and destruction, alcoholics, pornographers, homosexuals. God chose to call these people to be his church. And you look at that and you say, well, I'm none of those things. You're right, you're prideful. It is pride and arrogance that looks at the blessing and redemption of Jesus Christ and says, I don't need that. But that's for someone else. Recognize that sin was running roughshod over our lives, that God did a spiritual work of enabling and salvation to bring us, to make us able to be his church. Not because we're good or better than anybody else, but because in our lostness, we recognize a need for a savior and Jesus offered us that in his death and resurrection. That's what the church is. That's what the church is. We read there in, in Ephesians 1 that, that God has given the church Christ. Look, look back in Ephesians 1 with me really quickly. Speaking of Jesus, it said, <clears throat> and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. So Jesus is the boss. He is the Lord over all things to the church. God freely gave his son to the church. And we find out that the church, universal, not just Ridgecrest, but, but the collection of churches, the collection of believers, we manifest his body. 
And so the question became for us last Sunday, what in the world do we do with that? How do we live up to that? How do we seek to to faithfully manifest the body of Jesus Christ in so much as we partner here at Ridgecrest? How do you, how do I, how does the staff, how do we as dead people who have been made alive seek to honor faithfully our Lord Jesus Christ and manifest his church here in Greenville, Texas? Well, it's towards that end that I've given considerable thought, and it's towards that end that I'm just, I'm always impressed as I come away from Scripture. But but this kind of hit me with this idea that that I'm just flabbergasted. It's the extravagance of God is giving him Jesus, giving his son to a group of dead people that he's made alive, and allowing us to be his ambassadors, as Joe said, allowing us, calling us to manifest adequately here in this community, recognizing that we still need Christ who's filling us and filling all in all to even do that, right? And so this morning and next week, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at some attributes of what this looks like. How do we move from just going through the motions of this to actually manifesting a heart response to God? So this morning, we're going to be in a a parable which is likely familiar to many of you. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to, to journey with us all the way through this, asking yourself the question of how can we be the church? How does this passage communicate to us to be the church? Luke 10, 25 through 37. This is the account of, of the Good Samaritan, or the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me, let me read it for us, and then we'll walk through as a body. Picking up in 25, he says, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds to him and says, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as well, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you'll live. And we recognize this guy is not satisfied. He says, but he, speaking of the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus enters into this parable, which is where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time. Now, look how this account begins. Jesus is is teaching. He's sitting down with a group of people. This is kind of the the picture that we're given here in the Gospel of Luke. And then all of a sudden, this lawyer just jumps up. He he, he jumps up. This guy who's an expert on the law, he he jumps up, and and, and you can kind of see that he's almost getting in Jesus' face. He wants to see if Jesus actually can teach the way that he supposes that he can. He wants to see if Jesus has the good, see if Jesus understands the law as well as he can. The text tells us that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. He asks an interesting question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's not asking it in the conception and the way that we understand of this New Testament way of understanding of what must I do to be saved. That's not the question he's asking. He's not coming to Jesus and saying, how do I move from darkness to light? How do I get saved? That is quite simply just not the question he's asking. It's very similar language, but what he is asking as a Jew, what he's asking as an Israelite is how do I stay a part of the covenant people of God? 
What must I do to maintain my status before God? He's asking the question and, and presuming for you and I that we might understand that he likes his current position. He wants his current position to continue. He doesn't want it to fall away. So he asked Jesus this question. Tell me what to do. Jesus very rarely gives a straightforward uh, answer to these questions. And in fact, he turns the question back on the individual. Look what he says here in verse 26. He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? He asked him a twofold question. Now, this man is an expert in the law. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. He knows the Torah. He knows it uh, incredibly well. He is an expert. If people have discussions, uh, they're wrangling on, you know, how do you parse this? How do you kind of get to this? They go see this guy and they say, lawyer man, tell me what this is. Tell me how this works out. He's not an expert in, in Roman law. He's an expert in biblical law, biblical understanding. And so Jesus throws it back to him. He says, you want to know how to inherit eternal life? Let me ask you a question. What's written and how do you read it? In essence, he's asking him to quote scripture. Jesus turns it back on him and is in turn testing this man's understanding. Well, look at his answer. His answer when Jesus asks him what is written and how do you read it is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he couples it with this. He says, and your neighbor as yourself. Now what he's doing there, he's going to a couple of different places. And you can write this, write this down in the margin if you're not a quick turner. But first he goes to Deuteronomy 6.5. Recognize in Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema, something uh, right and righteous Jews would, re would recite twice a day. They would start in 6.4, they'd read down through. It starts with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, talking about that he's holy, unique, he's, he's other, he's one. And then five says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And so he is describing this reality that we are to love God, and we're to love God with every facet of our being. There is, there is nothing in us that is not to cry out with love for God. There is nothing in us which is to love self opposed to loving God. He's saying we love God with everything we've got. But he's not done. He couples that with this verse from Leviticus. Flip back to Leviticus 19.18. 19.18 reads this. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people. You don't take this out on Israelites, right? That's what he's saying, the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then we read, he says, I am the Lord recognizing that the, the strength of that command of not taking vengeance on your own people, for this lawyer not to take vengeance on another Jew, on another Israelite, is on the strength of who said it. And it, it is written there that it is the Lord that has given that as a law, given that as a requirement. So the lawyer lays these things out. He he is expositing, he's explaining scripture, using scripture. Jesus says, you know, what, what do you need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, what do you think you need to do, effectually, is, is the term that he gave to him. And the guy lays it out. He says, I need to love God and he love people. To what degree does he need to love God? He needs to love God with every facet of his being. Everything in him needs to cry out that God is supreme, that he is not. 
And what does that lead to? What's the logical progression of that? That as he's loving God, he's also turning and loving those around him. To what degree? As himself. The degree to which he is called to love his neighbor is the degree to which he loves even himself. And we're pretty good at that. As a society, we're very good at loving ourselves, at taking care of ourselves. And what this guy gets here is, is, is really running contrary and counter to a lot of what our culture calls to. That's interesting. But, but let's stay in this conversation. Jesus' response to him, you have answered correctly. You've given an orthodox response. You've given the right answer. Do this and you'll live. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't just tell him, you know, go out and do this, go out into the public square, tell people you love God, find some poor, you know, disheveled soul and tell them you love them. And when they say, well, what do you mean? You're like, man, I love myself, I love you too. Would you go tell five people about that so I can be done with this? That's not what he's talking about. Jesus gives us the insight there that what he's prescribing for this individual is repeated action. That he's to wake up each and every morning loving God. That he is to draw each breath with this recognition that he is to love God over everything. And that as he's doing this, God is changing his heart and calling him to demonstrate this love for God in his treatment of mankind. All those made in the image and the likeness of God as we learn about in Genesis. Jesus' response is, as you do this each and every day, it will keep you a part of this people. As as your faith and trust in God is demonstrated in your care and love for humanity, it will keep you a part of this covenant people. So the lawyer hears this. Doesn't particularly care for this response. I mean, this is really an open-ended thing, right? So if I go to Trey and say, Trey, I want you to give me a list of people you don't particularly care for. Trey's like, really? I love everybody because I know just what you, I know you're setting me up. I say, come on, Trey, give me a list of people you're not particularly fond of. And so Trey's got a really short list. At the top of it says something like Matt Beasley. I'm like, what? I say, okay, Trey, I see how you want to be. Let me talk to somebody else. So I go to Chase. Chase, you're a lawyer. Give me a list of people that you're not particularly fond of or aren't particularly fond of you. And I want you to go to these people and I want you to love them as yourself. And he's like, oh, man. That's difficult. I was really hoping you could put Lydia at the top of that list. I need to love my wife as I love myself because I'm all about that. I'm all about that. Or, you know, somebody wrote Joe or they wrote me and they put our spouse's name and they say, look, I want you to go and I want you to love your spouse as yourself. You look at that and you say, I can do that. I can do that most days if I don't wake her up too early. She loves me too. The lawyer gets the awe-encompassing totality of this command, loving others as yourself. He sought to restrict it there by using this reference in Leviticus 19.18, just in the people of God. Jesus is going to expand it wider than he ever thought possible. Jesus responds to him, you do this and you'll live Lawyer's not satisfied, 29, he says, but desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. In essence, recognizing his inability, recognizing those things that he's done that have been wrong, recognizing that he has not lived up to this. 
Likely, even in among his own people, he struggled to live up to this. Recognizing this, he comes back to Jesus. In essence, he says, you got anything a little easier? Man, don't you have a caveat you can slap on that? Love other people as yourself, you know, in as much as they do the same to you. Jesus, you got something like that you can work in there? You can slide alongside that? So Jesus says, huh, okay, okay, okay. Desiring to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wants to shrink this. He wants to bring this down. He wants to find out exactly how few people can I love as myself? What what does that look like, Jesus? That's a little bit nebulous. How about you bring that down to something I can actually wrap my arms around, get at, understand, tolerate to some degree? And Jesus replies, replies in the way that he does often. He gives him a, uh, a parable. He gives him a story meant to teach a point or, 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 or a collection of points. Now, this is where we really need to lean in. This is where most of you say, I know how the story ends. This guy is the good guy. We didn't expect it. And you're going to be like, oh, he's the good guy. Like you didn't see that coming, right? Don't go there. Pay attention to the story. Jesus describes the most nondescript person uh, that we can imagine. He says, a man, or you might read it and say, a person was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. An individual, a a, a person, was was on this journey, a 17-mile trip, and he's going from around an elevation of 2,500 feet to around 800 feet below sea level. And so he's, he's walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's this, this treacherous, awful path. It's, it's got caves, it's got large rocks, and it's just the, the path that he would have walked is winding and folding back on top of itself. It's not an easy trip, and we're going to find out for this individual, it's especially not an easy trip. And it would have taken him most of a day to make this journey. If he's walking at, at a careful pace, it's going to take him around eight, eight, eight and a half hours or so to make this trip. And so he is on this trip from point A to point B. You can imagine he rounds a corner, and out from this cave we see this band of thugs. This group of men, that it is their occupation, their, their station in life to beat up people that travel this road, and business, business is good. And so they see this guy coming along, he falls in among them. In essence, we, we see he is taken by them. And look what they do to him. They strip him, they beat him, and they leave him half dead. Now, we can read in other historical accounts of what these robbers might have looked like. And so that you imagine these guys aren't just there, you know, you know, sleeves rolled up and they're ready just to pound him with their fists. They're looking to do their job as easily as possible. So they're going out with clubs. They're going out with stones. They don't really care the situation the man ends up with. They go out and they're beating him with all of their might. They're putting their whole heart into this endeavor to beat this guy. And in the process of beating this guy and bloodying this guy, they take his clothes and they rip his clothes right off his back. They rip his clothes right off his back. And you can imagine that, that as this man lays over here, he is bleeding all over his body, from his head, from his arms, from his chest, from his back. He's got saliva and blood all coming down, mixed with tears and dirt and little bits of rock, and he is laying there in complete and utter agony. Now, the text tells us 
that this man that was, was left there, he was left in such a state that he was more dead than he was alive. So he's got this raspy, rattling breath as he's struggling to stay alive. As he's struggling possibly to maintain consciousness, he is in no way able to care for himself. This is the picture in the lawyer's mind. This should be the picture in our own minds. Now, the text in this next verse, if you don't know the story well, it gives you a glimmer and a flick of hope. Look at how it starts. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. The lawyer, these are people that are kind of in his group. These are people that he would pal around with. These are people that might call him and say, hey, can you help us work this out? We've got this disagreement. How might this work? These are people that he would be intimately acquainted with. So he hears a priest, and in his mind, he's jumping to the end. He says, that's right. The priest went down that road. He set this guy back up, and he took care of him. But look how Jesus continues the story. He says, now a priest went down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This guy is bloodied, he is broken, he is, beat, he is beaten, he is naked. The priest is coming down the road and he sees him and he just sidestep, keep on going, pretend like he's not there. Sees a person in need and he keeps going. Now for a long time when this parable was told, the, the, the Levite and the priest were given an exception. People said no, they didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. And they said, look, their, their behavior is justified because of kind of where they are. Well, later study and research has shown us this is just absolutely not true. If we take on ground that they are traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, likely they've already performed whatever religious duties they have. They've already been to the temple. They're headed back home. They don't need to worry about becoming ceremonially unclean. In fact, there are other provisions from later rabbinic writings that give us an indication that to aid someone who is in need would not make you ceremonially unclean. He just didn't want to be bothered. The text doesn't give us an indication that there's any type of inner wranglings in his mind saying, oh, look, there's somebody made in the image and likeness of God. Oh, can I, should I, should I, should I not? No. The text tells us quite simply, he saw him, he stepped on the other side of the road, he kept going. Well, look how it goes next. Likewise, likewise a Levite. This gives us the idea and the impression this Levite too is making this trip and he's walking down the road and just like the guy before him, he sees him as well. All the things that the priest did, the Levite is being asked to do. So the Levite, when, but look here the difference. When he came to the place and saw him, the priest is walking down the road. He sees him, he steps to the other side, and he treks on down. This guy, this priest, says when he came to the place, when he drew near to the person and got up close to the person and saw him, heard him, smelled him, he stepped to the other side and just kept on walking. His experience of the great need of this individual is so much more acute than the priest because he drew so much closer to the problem. His recognition of, of the need of the man was so much more acute because his observation was so much more invested. But the degree to which he was invested did not change his heart. It didn't change his direction. In fact, we read in exactly the same way. He passed by on the other side. 
So the lawyer hears Jesus giving this account. He hears Jesus really not being very kind to probably some of this guy's friends. This guy's got friends that are priests. This guy's got friends that are Levites that are working in the temple. And so likely what he's thinking in his mind is that this is a rant against the religious order. Jesus is going to show me how this Jewish layman comes forward and he is the hero of this story. But Jesus chooses an altogether unlikely heroes. In fact, in 33 it says, but a Samaritan. Now, I want you to understand there is a lot of dislike, hate, distrust between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds and unworthy. In fact, there's this rabbinic reading that says if you break bread with a Samaritan, it's just as bad as eating pork. I love pork. Jews did not eat pork. They, they stayed away from pork because it would make them unclean. And so what he's reading here, to break bread with another person made in the image and the likeness of God, but having fundamental differences and distinctions with would make him unclean. So this lawyer hears this story and says, but a Samaritan, he's got to be thinking, man, I hope he walks up and just stomps that guy so that my preconceived understanding of what a Samaritan is good for is upheld, maintained. Upheld and maintained. This is what this guy is likely thinking. And, and check here the difference. The Samaritan isn't just going from Jerusalem to Jericho. What we read here in the text is he is journeying. He is headed on this large circuit and just happens to encounter this guy as a part of a much larger trip that he's taking. Now look here. It tells us in exactly the same way or similar way as the priest says he came, or the Levite, he came to where he was. Samaritan's walking down the road. He comes to the place where this man is bloodied, beaten, and stripped, naked, left, dying for dead. He came to that place, and he saw him. He beheld him. He got close to this man. He knows exactly the difficulty that this man is facing and what an investment in this man's life will likely cost him. What does he choose to do? Does he pass on by? No, it, it, it says that he went to him and he bound up his wounds. So as he came near to this man, he bent down on the ground, he took some of his robe, he took some of his inner garment, and he ripped them. And he made bandages out of them. And so he's binding up his wounds. He's, he's stopping him from bleeding. He is anointing him with wine to treat the wounds, to try and work as a disinfectant. He's taking the oil and he's anointing his wounds with oil in such a way as to attempt to soothe this man's woes, this man's discomfort. He is thoroughly investing himself in this man. And then he walks away and says, you know, best of luck, you look much better, maybe someone else will help you. I, I've really helped you all I can. Look, I tore my favorite robe, I tore my favorite inner garment, now I've got nothing to drink and if I get a scratch, I'm just hosed. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Is that what it says? It says, that, you know, he invested himself to a tremendous degree and certainly much more than the priest or the Levite, but when he got done doing that, he was just tapped out. He's all done with helping people for that day. That's a story we would expect. That's a story we see in our lives. That's something that we see as we go out and we're engaging in our community, as we see people help us or help those around us. But look what he does. 
He takes the man and he, he lifts him up. So he's getting his blood, he's getting his tears, he's getting his dirt, he's getting all the filth of this man on him as he heaves his body off the ground. And then he turns and he places the man on his animal, on his mule. He is thoroughly invested in this guy's life. And he takes him from there to an inn. He doesn't just pawn him off on someone else. He goes to this inn and the passage tells us in verse 34 that he took care of him. Now look here, there's a distinct difference in 34 and 35. 34 all happens well, let's say on a Monday, 35 happens on a Tuesday and following. This guy cares for this guy all night long. All night long, he's caring for him. As this guy's moaning and complaining. He is taking care of him. And then 35, we read, and on the next day, on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. This is what this guy has done. He's thoroughly invested himself in the guy's life. He's, he's made himself dirty by caring for him. He's placed him on his donkey. He's finished this trek with this guy. He spends a night caring for him. And the next morning when he wakes up, he goes to this innkeeper and he takes out two days' wages. He takes out two days' wages and he gives them over to that innkeeper. And what he provides for this man is somewhere between 14 and 24 days of lodging. 14 to 24 days, depending on how you want to calculate this, of lodging. Wasn't just looking to get him to a point and drop him off and be done with him. He's looking to thoroughly invest himself in this man's life. In fact, he says, look, I'm going to give you this money up front, but I want to let you know that if this guy needs anything else, the next time I come back through, I will satisfy his bill. What a tremendous display of grace and mercy. That where twice this man was, was kicked to the side, was overlooked, this man didn't overlook him, but looked all the way up on him, beheld his face, took him on, placed him on his animal, cared for him, and then gave provision so that he might continue to be cared for. So Jesus goes through this story, and I, I can imagine the lawyer is just fuming, fuming that this Samaritan, this half-breed, this reject would be so kind. And look how Jesus brings him face-to-face -face with the reality of that. Jesus asks him at the end of this, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? sure every fiber of his being was wanting to say, well, the Levite, you know, kind of more than the priest. You know, he, just, he couldn't bring himself to say it. And so he responds, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He can't bring himself to say that it was the Samaritan who proved to be a neighbor to the man. He can't bring himself to say his name. So he describes his actions. He describes his characteristics and he sums them up this way. He says, the Samaritan showed mercy to the man. And in showing mercy, he proved to be a neighbor. Jesus looks at his response. He takes it. Now, you remember this guy's initial question was what? His initial question was, who is my neighbor? 
Essentially, who am I responsible for taking care of? Who am I responsible for taking care of? And so you get down to the end of this, Jesus asked him who proved to be a neighbor, who showed themselves through their behavior to be a neighbor to this individual. The guy says it's the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus tells this guy, you go copy the Samaritan. You go and do likewise. He gives him with the same intensity, the same duration, the exact same charge as earlier. Earlier he told him, you go, you do this and you'll live. Here he tells him, that he is to continually engage in this type of behavior. He's to continually engage in this behavior of being merciful to all those who need it. To be merciful to all those who are impoverished. To be merciful to all those who are are marginalized on the outside of of society. You remember that this guy in, in Leviticus 13, 19, he wanted to restrict kind of the realm of his responsibility to his people, to Jewish people. In essence, he was asking Jesus, how do I tell who the Jews are? Like, it get pretty awkward. You know, I know there's some ways I can know, but that's going to get real personal real fast. So Jesus, how can I know who my neighbor is? Because he wants to keep it just within this people of God. And Jesus expands upon this. You see, what this guy neglected in Leviticus 19, 18, it's readily apparent to us in Leviticus 19.33. Leviticus 19.33 says this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He wanted to restrict it. He wanted to keep close and easy this provision for how he might love his neighbor as himself. Friends, can I tell you, we want to do the same thing in church. What we read about in Ephesians is that God has given Jesus Christ as head over all things to the church, and we, the church, are its body, his body. We manifest the church universal in the particular here at Ridgecrest. But too often the question goes out of, of what can I do just to make this happen? And, and, and in essence, when we look at passages like this, we want five concrete things we can do. We want five concrete things we can do so that our conscience might be alleviated. We ask, in a very real sense, the same question as the lawyer. His question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus leads him into an understanding that that is the wrong question to ask. The right path to follow is following in the manner of life Jesus has set before us and demonstrated to us as an example. We seek to be neighborly to who? To everyone. We seek to demonstrate the mercy of God in following the commands of Jesus Christ and being merciful to everyone, especially, especially those who are just gonna draw it out of us, especially those who are gonna make us weary, especially those who are gonna make us angry, especially those who might disappoint us, especially those that everybody else around us looks at them and says, friend, they are not worthy of your time. They're not worthy of your intellect. They are not worthy of your money. 
You know what I would say to you if you had that same idea that you would look at somebody else and say they're not worthy of my time, energy, money, or intellect? So you value things that God doesn't. You've set a premium on things that God would set as secondary. As we seek to love God, it is demonstrated in our love for humanity. Conversely, if you live your life and you don't yearn to work for the good of those around you, if you don't yearn to invest yourself in the lives of people around you, people that that doubt Christianity, people that struggle with same-sex attraction, people that are struggling with drug addiction, if you aren't investing yourself in the lives of people like this, then your love of God is weak. Because a true love of God as we read about in James and elsewhere, it produces a life of demonstrating the faith that you have. So the question before us, if we are going to manifest the church, if we are truly going to show ourselves to be his body, then we have to follow in the same charge that Jesus gives. If we are going to be his body, then we need to be a people who practice mercy. If we are going to be his body, then we can't set limitations on our service. We can't look at situations and say, man, they hurt my feelings, or, or this just really upsets me, and, and just wash our hands and be done with it. I'm sorry, have you spent much time around people? Have you lived your whole life on an island by yourself? People are going to hurt your feelings. Some of you, it's because you wear your feelings on your sleeve. Others, it's just because the people you're working with are jerks. But this is the reality of that. We recognize in chapter 2 that God sent Jesus to die for them as well. We recognize the reality that, that, that some of us in our former way of existence were alcoholics. Some of us in our former way of existence struggled with things that if we told some of the people at this church, they would drop dead. They would just drop dead. You'd say, well, you know, and then there was the time I killed this guy, and there was the time, you know, I did a little, little jaunt in prison, so I shipped a couple people, and he's like, oh, I can't, you're on the pew beside me. We recognize that to get involved and, and to invest ourselves in the lives of those around us, these are the people that we're going to be investing in. We're going to be investing ourselves in people that have real needs and that have no heirs about about sharing them with us because they are at the bottom and some of us would do well to be brought low so that we would recognize our true need for Jesus. A need that transforms our former way of existence and calls us into a life of obedience and mercy as we seek to follow the one who is merciful to us when we were the dead man on the side of the road. God came near us in Jesus Christ when we had been bloodied and beaten by the world. God came near us in the person of Jesus and fully invested himself with us. He didn't lift us up and place us on a donkey. He lifted the son. God lifted the son and placed him on a cross so that we might have communion, relationship, redemption in Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And the more we spend time meditating on that reality, the more we begin to demonstrate God's heart for the lost and dying and for those who are suffering in our world. 